The Power of Privilege and Allyship podcast showcases the positive impact of using privilege to maximize allyship and transform lives. Find out more about privilege and allyship by listening to this new podcast series. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Power of Privilege and Allyship podcast. My name is Funke Abimbola, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Austin Bronte Consultancy. The consultancy's main aim is to improve leadership by leveraging the impact of diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity across the business world. Today, I will be speaking to two very special guests, my dear friend, Chuck Stevens, and my 18-year-old son, Max Abimbola. Chuck and Max, welcome to the show. Oh, great to be here. <laughs> A pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Chuck, I'll start with you today. Tell us all a bit more about you and, and your background. Well, you know, in a podcast, it's difficult to get a visual representation. Um, white American raised in the South. I am 100 kilos on the best of days and 190 centimeters tall. For anybody that's seen the movie The Help, I was born in Jackson, Mississippi in 1966, which would have been the same era as the baby in the movie. And, and my family was closer to being the help than having help. But the reality of that movie um, were very much my realities growing up. And I was fortunate to grow up in a college town in Gainesville, Florida. And I, I knew the messages I heard in society about what a white Southern man was supposed to be or the way I was supposed to behave. At the same time, I knew who my friends were. And because of it being a college town, it was, an ama- it was a small town, but amazingly worldly and, and people from all over the world. And I just knew who my friends were and who I wanted to play with. And so th- that, that conflict between the societal norms in the late 60s, early 70s versus, you know, who I just wanted to play with, with that child innocence, frankly, really shaped the fact that, you know, I, by accident, I became a labor economist. I, I wasn't. I was going into economics, but I didn't plan on doing labor. And then I, 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 you know, in American vernacular, I got woke a little bit more, hearing some more data and understanding about privilege in a different way. Sure. Um, you know, something. I'm the youngest of my family, um, of my generation. We're the first to go to university. You know, they were amazing role models that were very successful. Um, I'm gay, and so I grew up with the this kind of duality of, of something that I knew didn't fit the norm as well. Yeah. Um, and something that may be a trigger for folks is, you know, based on the size, I'm a big guy. And so, you know, I can't think of a time in my life where I've been in fear for myself, mm. you know, and I realized from the women that were in my family and others that that's not the reality. And when we look at, you know, I'm sure there's conversations you've had with Max about, you know, navigating, in, in London or, or anywhere in the world, you know, but yet even whenever I'm in the minority, I'm weighted on very quickly. I tend to be perceived that I'm safe. Yes. Um, and that privilege um, really resonates with me, but it's shaped why I've been doing diversity and inclusion work for the past 20 years, both in the United States and in Europe. I've been in Europe for eight years now, uh, London predominantly, but in Amsterdam at booking.com for the last uh, three. Wow. Gosh. Wow. Incredible, your background. And, you know, we'll come, we'll, we'll delve a bit deeper into that and how that has shaped your work even more. But over to you, Max, can you introduce yourself to our audience? 
Yeah, how do I follow that? Okay, so, you know, uh, my name is Max Avimbola, as she said. Um, I'm a year 13 student studying maths, chemistry and computer science. And I'm due to finish my A-levels at Touchwood in summer. Uh, and I've been offered to study computer science at university and I'm an aspiring software engineer. Uh, so that's me. There was a real turning point, wasn't there, age 13? Tell us a bit more about what happened at that age for you. Yeah, so the major turning point really in my life, I think, um, is I suddenly decided that I wanted to build my own computer. So, you know, I'd have conversations with my dad and my mom. I let them know, you know, the plan. And then slowly over the course of the year, I just collected all the parts and did my research. And, you know, I, eventually I, I built it and it worked, surprisingly. One morning, I remember, one cold morning, um, I think it was, it must have been winter, um, uh, that I just, you know, I pressed the button and it just lit up and all the fans were turning and, you know, it just felt, you know, it's just such a unique feeling. And anybody who's, you know, anybody who's really built something and it started to work will know what I, what I mean when it's like a kind of magical feeling when something you've built by yourself from scratch has worked. Uh, so, yeah, that's what, yeah, that was the turning point. I remember that vividly. You're right. It was in the winter. I think it was January or February, just after mm. Christmas, because you'd saved all your money yes. to buy all the parts. And, uh, you know, the living room was a mess, by the way, everyone, during <laughs> this whole, these mysterious packages were arriving daily from Amazon mm. and other suppliers. Oh. And in, in my sort of, I don't know, I was frustrated, really, that the living room was a mess and also rather concerned as to whether or not the computer would actually work. Mm. Uh, so I was posting on Facebook about it yeah. uh, fairly regularly, wasn't I, Max? And, you are. Um, and this is where Chuck comes in, because Chuck mm. and I have been friends for a number of years, and we're Facebook friends, where real friendships get uh, consolidated, of course, on Facebook. And uh, so Chuck read the uh, announcement I put out, my surprise that the computer uh, was actually working. What did you do after that, Chuck? Just tell us a bit more about what happened. Well, you know, it's funny. Most kids are worried about getting a Game Boy for Christmas, not the parts to build a computer. <laughs> and so there's an intellectual curiosity bell that, I, you know, throughout my career, that is something I absolutely look for um, and frankly hire for. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever I heard of Max, one, saving it to not only have the equipment, but build the equipment, I went, there's something special there and there's potential because that is a rare step that a lot of people, particularly at that age, don't take. Mm. And so, you know, I pinged you. And at the time, I was the head of diversity and inclusion and mayor for Google. And I said, Funky, we got to get this kid in the office and, you know, let him let him see, you know, mm. what's possible. Mm. And so we arranged for Max to come to Google on a tour. And, you know, you can hear the way Chuck is saying that. He just thought, hey, I'll just send Funky a message. Oh. Uh, she's my friend. Her son has talent, you know. Um, We'll invite him in. But for you, Max, what what did that have, the impact that had on you? Tell us a bit more. Well, the whole experience is just, I remember it so vividly, the excitement of being, you know, just being in that office and seeing, you know, being paired with a, an engineer that looked like me, that was, you know, Black, black British um, or came from, you know, uh, a minority ethnic background and was programming, just coding and talking about it and in a high position and respected. And it just, you know, it, it changed my life really because it made me realize that, you know, I do, this is what I want to do. I want this, I want to be here. I want to be able to do what he's doing. Um, and in order to do that, I need to 
you know, focus on work. I need to do better in certain subjects. I just need to push myself so I can get here. Um, really. So that was the, that's what happened basically. And and what were you like? So I'm obviously your mother and I remember very clearly what you were like before this pivotal event. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, Max? So before uh, was, the Google incident, what, yeah. what were you like? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just, I wasn't an amazing student. Teachers, well, teachers liked me because, you know, I was a, a bit of a joker. So I'd crack jokes, but then I wouldn't stop. And I'd always be talking and not focused and distracting people. So I was that kid, basically. I was that student. Um, I like to think I'm not anymore. I mean, I still joke with teachers and my, my friends and everything, but, you know, I'm a lot more focused now. So before, you know, that's how I was. I'm kind of pushing it down a little bit. I don't want to expose myself too much, but, you know, <laughs> we had some difficult parents' evenings, to say the least, yes. um, for quite a few years. But, you know, that was definitely the turning point. And it really shows what's possible when that light bulb moment goes off at whatever stage a young person's at. But importantly, someone needs to be there who has recognised that potential and is enabling it and, and supporting it uh, in, in some way. And I'm incredibly lucky uh, to have been friends with Chuck. And thank goodness I was having a bit of a rant on Facebook about it. It made a real difference. And since then, you know, your tech uh, focus has gone from strength to strength, Max, hasn't mm. it? I mean, could you tell us a bit more about things that you've done since then to build on that experience? Oh my, where do I even start? It's just skyrocketed, really. I mean, I've always been interested. I mean, most boys my age are interested in, you know, games and that kind of thing. But uh, and computers and I, I mean, I chose computer science for A level um, GCSEs, um, uh, and I chose it for A. I'm not doing it for A level, of course. Uh, I've been learning languages, uh, doing different challenges. I did a uh, this challenge called Cyber Discovery that I did actually really well in. I think I came 40th out of about 3,000 people. It's just like a, a cybersecurity um, challenge where you have to like a capture the flag kind of thing, if you've seen a capture the flag. Um, I just learned as much as I can. Just try, just try and learn, watching YouTube videos, reading, just learning, because I find it so interesting, this entire topic, this entire subject and tech and you know, so yeah, that's what I've been doing. And more recently, I've been getting, you know, work placements and uh, work experience, building websites, uh, an internship at a, um, a fintech company called Cryptcentra, um, and uh, even a, an entry-level uh, job opportunity from, uh, well, you know, a company or a software engineering. So, you know, all sorts has happened, really. And I've just just trying, trying to build on my knowledge and just keep on learning really. So yeah, to keep it brief, that's what, that's what I've been doing. That's so, so inspiring. And, you know, I, I want to talk more to Chuck about this because you've been very unassuming, Chuck, and very, very humble about uh, this incredible opportunity that, that you gave to Max. But given that your career now is in diversity and inclusion and has been for quite some time, this must form an early, uh, really important part of what you do in your day job, the whole early careers piece. It, it does. Um, I, I'm a firm believer. Matter of fact, we have a series here at Booking.com called See It, Be It. Um, you know, and, it, and just as an example, um, as a gay man, you know, it wasn't always the norm. And I've had managers in my past that told me, for example, you shouldn't come out to clients or, you know, that, that put you in a little box for some reason or another, though positively intended at times. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, but for the first time in my entire professional career, and we're on a podcast, but I'm closer to retirement than not, you know, I've got an out executive committee member in our organization. And it's interesting that the click that occurs in my head when that happens, Mm. um, you know, I've been the most senior out executive in organizations before. And at the time I wasn't that senior, you know, and, and so the power of someone just telling you, you can be, um, we have a mutual friend in John Amici and, you know, I don't think John would have mind me sharing the story that he talks about being a geeky kid in Manchester and walking out of Greg's sandwich shop with a, a stack of library books and a pie. Yeah. And, um, if anybody knows John, you know, like I said, I'm 190 centimeters. And he makes me feel very, very vertically tra- challenged. But um, somebody walked up to John and say, you said you would be b- brilliant at basketball when he was about Max's age or a little younger. Hmm. And he talks about, and I agree with this totally, the, the fact that someone said you could be great at something or let you see the, 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 pos- the art of possibility out there, I think is pivotal. Yeah. Um, you know, even whenever I was Max's age, I was involved in something called JETS. It was Junior Engineering Technical Society. And we did kind of all sorts of fun little science projects, you know, as a credit after school, but I never realized engineering was an option, sadly enough. You know, Mm. maybe that's a comment on my academic ability at the time, Max, but, you know, (laughs) um, but, you know, the dots never connected. And so, you know, I am all about how, how do we go through and help people realize and, you know, what, what could be. Mm. Um, And, you know, some organizations I've been in have had um, larger bandwidth or ability to drive that at scale. Um, you know, Google was was great at that. It's one of the the highlights of um, my time there. Um, but you know, other organizations are just struggling. But how do we reach out to the future of talent? Because as a leader in any organization, and I, I I use leader with a small L, as in we all have leadership potential. Absolutely. But, you know, we have a need and a responsibility to create future talent. And my years at Deloitte really groomed that because we knew not enough people were going into um, accounting or tax, for example. You know, we know not enough people are going into tech. And even in the UK, of the people that are going into STEM fields, and that's even lower for women or people of color, you know, BAME communities, um, STEM graduates, number one, want to go in to be a doctor, number two, biomedical re- research, or tied for third and fourth are software engineering and computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, some communities, and I believe this is very much kind of a Nigerian thing as well, parents tell their kids, you're going to be a doctor, lawyer, mm-hmm. a failure, you know? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> sure, I suspect that resonates. Um, <laughs> but realistically, I think we need to change the dial and talk about, frankly, you're going to go into technology or be a failure because Technology is disrupting the medical community. It's disrupting the legal community. And it's the one profession that will allow you to work in any industry Mm. and where some of the hottest innovation is coming from. Even when we're talking about energy, you know, it's around renewables and, and kind of smart technology. And so, you know, I think for young people, especially um, go into technology if you want to be assured because the, the skill gap of what we need versus where we are is in the millions. Mm. Mm-hmm. And is that what attracted you to tech, Max, apart from the computer building and what you saw at Google? Is it the possibilities of what tech can achieve that really attracts you? Absolutely. I mean, I see even with at the moment, we have to do a project, a final project for um, computer science that's marked and everything. And we get to do whatever we want. Um, so just the idea that 
you know, what I'm building at the moment, it's it's coming along really well. It's not quite there yet. It's almost there, very close. But every now and again, when I'm coding or I'm getting frustrated, I'll just I'll, I'll step back, take a deep breath, and I'll say to myself, I built that. Like I wrote every line of that code. And I thought of that. And I and I just like just the way that you can build something seemingly from scratch yourself and it will actually have some kind of an impact. Because what I'm building is meant to help people really understand some more complicated areas of computer science. So the fact that this could possibly help to teach somebody else that, you know, this isn't impossible. Like this is very accessible. You can learn about this quite easily. Um, that's what really inspires me and drives me. The idea that you can build something from scratch that can affect people. So, Wow. I think it's interesting as well that um, writing code, I think people think about very much in a STEM. And Max, please correct me if you disagree because you know better than I do. But mm -hmm. the facts, uh, the, the tech side of it, there is a science approach to it, but there's a lot of art mm. and creativity there, there, that are built into it. And so I think it's a unique opportunity to kind of blend hard and soft analytical and theoretical mm. that I think would be fascinating from that. And I talk about the art of code because it, there's not just a one way to do it and there are ways to optimize it. So you get to express a lot of creativity that you don't in some other areas, in my experience. Absolutely. I mean, there was this one, um, there's this one conference that this guy did or talk. I can't remember his name, which is re really annoying me. Uh, I'll have to tell you after this, but he did a presentation called The Art of Code. It's about an hour. It's on YouTube. And he talks about like the ways that, you know, code has been like the, the game of life. I can't remember who it was created by, but it's some uh, a mathematician um, that, oh, to, to explain it briefly, there are, okay, I won't explain it briefly because it's not very a brief explanation, but um, <laughs> it's a very simple game where you create these little cells and they do, they basically do certain patterns. And from that, people have just expanded it to the point where somebody has created the game within the game. And the idea that somebody can do that, that kind of like creativity, that somebody can just create something that's seemingly just simple, and then people can just run with it and just do amazing things that people never thought were possible. I feel like that just proves it's an art, really. So yeah, I hundred yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. My goodness. And I know you feel quite strongly about not enough girls going into oh, STEM okay. subjects. So you, Max, what have you done around that at school? I mean, in my, yeah, in my computer science class, initially in my GCSE class, um, which is, uh, what's the equivalent for Americans? It's like SAT, SATs, is that a that thing? Maybe, you're age okay. 16, aren't yep. you? Yeah, age 16, uh, when you're doing those exams. Um, there were two girls in my computer science class. Uh, now there's only one girl in my A-level class. So, and she's a really close friend of mine. So she always says to herself, uh, you know, she always says, oh, I'm not smart enough for this. I can't do this. I can't do, and I'm just like, and she's, I feel like she feels a bit intimidated by everybody else because people are loud. Like there are some big egos in the class and, you know, I feel like it's just important to let her know, like constantly push her and tell her like, this isn't impossible. You just need to, you just need to work. You just need to like persevere because you are, you got into this class just like everybody else. You're getting the same grades as everybody else. So why should you think that you're not as capable as everybody else? Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I feel very strongly about that. Good job, Absolutely. Max. You know, there's a great, um, another podcast or recording from National Public Radio in the United States, NPR. 
that talks about the history of when, because women were early at the for- forefront of tech, mm. um, you know, mm. dating back to, you know, Alan Turing, you know, at Betchley mm. Park and things like that. But um, it talks about that ga- computers were originally marketed, at least in the U.S., as gaming, and they assumed it was only going to be a boy's thing. Mm. And so all of a sudden, the computers ended up in boys' bedrooms to, for mm. them to play with. And it wasn't viewed as an appropriate toy, quote unquote, for a woman. Mm. And then these students get to uni and the boys have been playing on a personal computer and have a certain level of knowledge, whereas girls largely didn't, young women. Um, and then they would get frustrated and drop out. Well, I'll send you the link to it if, if you want to include it in the, and, you know, be supported to this. But Gosh, I hadn't appreciated the gaming angle to it. So that's mm. how the exclusion starts from that point. You see it from an early age, like, oh, that's for boy. Like, you don't, I've, I've, I know girls that play games, but they keep so quiet about it. Whereas if you ask a boy, I mean, they'll immediately say, yeah, I play this, 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 been playing it for years. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a thing. And there's definitely a stigma around it. Or at least girls feel like if they say it, they'll be seen as a certain type of girl instead mm-hmm. of one that maybe will be desired by boys, that kind of thing. But that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation. You know, Max, so, yeah, you, you hit on, on something important there because we I talk um, within our, in my organizations across my career about kind of giving away or hoarding power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, six, you know, I talked about kind of six or, you know, 190 centimeter or yeah, centimeters tall and, and kind of traveling and always feeling safe. Um, I am awarded power because of my color or my perceived privilege or things like that. And some of the best leaders I know give away their power to make themselves more approachable. Mm. Women I find, particularly in the UK, said the American, um, are, you know, funky, you look lovely today, you know, and it may be this, oh, this whole thing. Or whenever you give um, a man a compliment, it's normally, well, thank you. Um, when a woman's given a compliment, you know, largely they're socialized to say, oh, well, we did this. Mm. And so the, 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 the death by a thousand cut that happens is, you know, when you go through and tell someone they're good at something, and they say, thank you. It reinforces it in your own perception that, yes, they did that. Mm. When someone's constantly giving away for power and my mother was notorious with it. She was always telling me what she was awful at and mm. she couldn't bring herself to say what she was good at. But at some point, if someone tells you they're awful at something, you're going to start to believe them at some level, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah. You know, and so kind of own your achievements, uh, own your your compliments. You know, Max, you know, I was complimenting you and you were even doing it because we're all socialized to do it, particularly in a British content. Mm. Whereas the Americans, we're the, we're the first to want to go through and tell you. How wonderful <laughs> um, so I appreciate the norms and differences, but it, 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 it's, it's all the subtle stuff that kicks in that, that I don't want to say it predetermines our, our future, but until we go through and are told, wow, you'd be great at something, you know, we start to even believe the societal messages we hear, even with our own communities. Mm. No, a hundred percent. Cause I feel like, um, especially in software engineering, I've seen, uh, and all sorts of different scientists that are like, you know, difficult, uh, per se, or seen as, you know, for the smart people, there's so much imposter syndrome and there are so many issues with that. Um, people feeling like they're not good enough or I don't deserve this. I shouldn't be here. All these people are much smarter than me, but 
you know, I feel like, and I even get it sometimes in my own class, even though I know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good. I know I'm good. I know I'm good at like what I do and I know I'm learning and I know I can obviously be better, but I'm not terrible. But it's just, you know, it is very important sometimes for me to catch myself when I say, oh no, I'm not, it's not amazing because this, this and that. I should say, no, it is, it is great because I did this, this and that, like, you know, uh, so yeah, that resonates with me. I, and I'll be honest with you and transparent and say, I get imposter syndrome all the time. Mm. But, you know, as a boy growing up, I was socialized to kind of brush yourself off, pick yourself up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get on mm. with it. Mm. Um, I've got a godson who's now 18. I can't believe that. But, <laughs> um, you know, he's got a little sister. And I remember when Diego was small, if he fell in a playground and I'm a labor economist, I know all this junk, you know, but if yeah. he fell in a playground, I'd pick him up brush him off, get him a pat on the butt and tell him to get back in there. Mm. Whenever Maylee would do the same thing, I'd pick her up and I'm like, baby, are you okay? And I would want to comfort her. And I'm like, you got to stop this, Chuck. You know, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm in theory, know this stuff, but I still do it. I know. You know. It's very hard for us to override biases and what society expects. And, you know, we're, we're brought up ourselves in that way, much as our parents may or may not have tried not to. Uh, have those expectations of us it's you know society then reinforces those those norms even further and it becomes very very difficult to override that but we Um, do it for ourselves as well you know um and tell me if you agree with this but you know within the lgbt community there's a ton of internalized homophobia that limits ourselves you know, even within communities of color, you know, the amount of work we do to lighten or darken our skin or, you know, straighten Mm. our hair, you know, Mm. there's, there's stuff we put in our way. And those little demons are always sitting on our shoulders saying you're less than, you know. Yes, yes, that is so true. And you you touched on a point earlier around privilege, that that magical word, which is such an important part of why, why I started this podcast series. What does privilege mean to you, Chuck? What's your understanding? You know, it's funny that you say that. And I, I, to, I mean, like to say I, I grew up poor is an understatement. You know, it took me about 10 years to get through college because I was financing my own education. Um, but I was brought up with the belief you can be anything you want to be, you know, and, and that's a powerful message. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I am privileged that even with the humble beginnings that I had, I still was being told, you know, you can be anything you want to be. And, and God knows it took me a long time. Um, I don't I don't necessarily feel that I am, quote unquote, privileged, but, you know, I recognize I am because it never feels like you're truly privileged. But I recognize I'm part of the 1% and, you know, funky, I suspect you are as well, you know, you know, and it, so it's one of those things where that was a conversation I've had with colleagues, particularly in tech is we, by definition, we are all part of the 1% and I doubt very seriously, there's any or very many of us in this, you know, as colleagues that worry about where we're going to sleep tonight or if we're going to go hungry or, you know, those sorts of things. So, um, you know, I, I lead what it sounds like a glamorous life. You know, I normally commute pre-COVID. I live in London, but work in Amsterdam. And we have an apartment in Amsterdam, which is where I'm now. And I fly back to London. Um, you know, my partner, husband is 
maybe retired. He may go back. I don't know. We'll find out. He's deciding, you know, <laughs> but the fact that we get to decide these things yeah. or mm-hmm. that, you know, at 55, I hope to retire in the next three to five years. That is a level of privilege that I don't necessarily feel wealthy, but I am. Mm. Um, you know, there are times that things hold me back at multiple organizations, Booking and Google being two of them. When they heard a white American male was going to be coming into lead diversity and inclusion, some people's heads exploded, mm. you know. And, you know, I sometimes with students will will ask, you know, are you wondering what the white American male is going to tell you about diversity and inclusion? And you see people kind of laughing and I go, well, you know, my cheeky response is I hope my gender doesn't define my ability to do a job. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when you hear I'm a labor economist, does it change? And occasionally I'll see some nods. But the thing that's fascinating to me is whenever I go through and say, if I tell you I'm gay and I just have to get to get and they figure out what it is. And I literally see people's faces going, oh, now we get it. Yeah. So even though I I appreciate I'm privileged, I don't feel I have privilege because there's always somebody that has more, you know. Yes. I, I long for my own private jet, but that will never happen. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's one of those things where nobody ever feels privileged, but we are. The fact yes. we're we're talking on this podcast, or we live in the cities and the communities we do in, makes make us privileged. Absolutely, and that we're not having very different conversations on these podcasts as well. I mean, no. we're, we're talking about how you know Max was inspired, and he's you know improved, and he's done very well as a student because of all of this. That in and of itself means that Max has had the support he needed mm. to get to that point. And therefore, Max, you are also privileged. I mm. know you you realize uh, you are privileged. Mm. But it was your, you know, it was you exercising your privilege, Chuck, without realizing that's what you were doing. Working at Google at the time meant that you had access to these abundance of resources and mentors for Max. And that simple act of reaching out to me to say, wow, you know, he needs to come in. Was you actually exercising the privilege? Because not everyone we know works for Google, for example. But, you know, the the interesting piece is that effectively, this is a modern version of the good old boy network. Yes. You know, and so we talk about the good old boy network as an evil thing. And there are a lot of of repercussions of the good old boy network that would have benefited me more than say, you know, you funky as an early solicitor as an example. And I've heard you talk about that. Um, You know, but the, 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 the gift of privilege or sharing privilege or giving away power is something that it, it took nothing and it didn't deplete me. In fact, it actually, I think I got, in a weird way, I think I got more out of it than Max did, at least in the moment, because whenever I see what happened to, you know, I, I'm like, I didn't do anything, you know, mm-hmm. but the joy to hear that somehow I had some granular level of, of impact to, I can't, I can't express the joy it brings me. I'll get emotional about it. Aww. You know, that's wonderful. So Max, you know you are privileged, even within the minority ethnic community. You, mm-hmm. you well, it's something I've made you very aware that you are privileged. Mm-hmm. What ways can you give examples of how you've exercised that privilege to maybe support others? Because I know that you have. Oh uh, yeah, of course. I mean, as I said earlier, uh, I always support the um, the girl that's uh, doing computer science, who's my very close friend. I always support her when she feels like she's doubting herself 
or uh, anything like that. Um, other ways, I mean, at its core, a privilege, I also think, is just the free, like the freedom, freedom in like in every sense of the words. Because I said previously, when I wasn't doing so well at school, I had the freedom to do that. Not every child had the freedom to mess up that many times, and I I recognize that every day as something that you know I've been given. I'm privileged to be able to do that. Um, because there are so many examples of fr- like even friends I know, even friends my you know my mom knows, uh, even people my mom mentors where they did not have the option to be messing up at all. Um, so you know, uh, I guess just the way I've exercised it to help others. Mm. Yeah, no, that that gives a really yeah. good flavor, definitely, yeah. because it shows the ripple effect. You know, this is now feeding through. You know, from Chuck to, to Max and then Max to, you know, I won't name the name of the young lady, but I do know her. And indeed others that, you know, will be listening to this and thinking, gosh, if Max was able to turn it around, you know, there'll be other parents who'll be listening to this thinking, gosh, this might work for my young daughter or whoever it might be. And it's so important to realise this is like a wider cycle. The, the other thing that's really, really key, and this is something you talked about, Chuck, is the network in and of itself is not a bad thing. You know, we we all look very different. I mean, Max looks a little bit like me because I'm his mother. But, you know, we actually do look very, very different. If we're walking out uh, together, you know, we look very different. It's obvious that we're from different backgrounds. And yet we've all been able to enjoy privilege from each other in different ways and to support each other. Uh, and that's what's so, so important. And it leads on to you know, allyship, which is the other theme of, of these podcasts, because, you know, allyship is such a broad concept, isn't it, Chuck? I mean, what does allyship mean to you and how have you seen that being exercised well? Well, you hit on a passion of mine. Whenever I think about the unique gifts that each underrepresented community historically has had, particularly for the LGBT community, I think allyship has been the superhero strength. Um, Because it represents such a small percentage, you know, popular accounts, depending on where you are, less than 10% of the population, um, that without allies, we wouldn't be where we are. And, you know, there's this tension that exists in communities. And I run into this a lot within diversity inclusion of this concept of for us, by us. And, you know, the idea that, you know, I shouldn't speak for the BAME or or Black Afro-Caribbean community. At the same time, we have this conflict of the burden of change shouldn't lay with the underrepresented group. Yes. Um, and so it, it's a really hard piece because it's almost like we want our cake and eat it too. Mm. Yeah. You know, and so allyship is me going through and, and creating a platform or giving access or sharing my privilege. Um, effectively, we're talking about sponsorship at some level, which is I know is a really hot topic in a lot of businesses today. It is. Um, but, you know, I find that people generally go through and want to mentor, but they don't feel they're ready to mentor someone else. And, you know, Max, what I really like to hear is you've received mentoring, but you're paying it forward. And because mm. all of us have the ability to help someone else. And so allyship is this concept of when can I step in front to protect help with your permission of someone, whatever the, the someone is, when do I create a platform or share access, invite you into the organization I'm in to hopefully inspire you. 
Um, but I think sometimes we want, we, our defenses are so high that we don't even allow it to happen at times mm. or don't realize when it's happened. Because I've, I've been in situations before where I was trying to sponsor someone or help them or encouraging them. They felt because of my positional power, I was limiting their ability to contribute. And even though I was saying yes things, they actually thought I was, based on my, my organizational authority, saying that's really nice, almost patronizing and shutting them down. And the exact opposite was true. And so they were telling someone else that they couldn't find sponsorship or that 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 agency to be given to them when it was giving, but they didn't even know to re they didn't even oh. recognize it when it's happening. So it's really complex, but it's it's basically around what can we do to help someone else and share our power because the sum of the parts is greater than the individual values. Absolutely, I like that. And Max, would you agree that allyship and privilege do go hand in hand then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even talking uh, more about mentorship, I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, my my friends, my dad's friends, children who were very close with family friends, uh, two black boys, uh, they were suddenly, you know, seeing me and what I was doing at the age of 18 with coding and, you know, software engineering and tech, wanted to learn more about Python. So we set up a Zoom call and I just explained to them, you know, different resources. I mean, they're very young, so, you know, but even that, I mean, I feel like that's how I've used my privilege to help people even. just Even just like giving them just an ounce of what I was given, even though I haven't had much experience, but enough to tell them like how to get to the next step and how to start early. Um, so, yeah. But, yeah. you know, Max, in that moment, that was probably the world to them. Mm. And so you don't need to know at all, but you know more than them and you shared your knowledge. So mm. a perfect example, I think. Gosh, mm. that is wonderful. I don't think I was even aware of that. Maybe you did tell me about it, Max. But <laughs> it was, yeah. Incredible. Mm. So there's a, for those of you, you know, this is an audio, obviously, this podcast, but I, we're actually able to see each other on the screen. So we're recording via Zoom. So I can actually see behind Chuck, there's a very interesting picture behind him and it's of Maya Angelou. Uh, we had a bit of a conversation about this earlier, but do you want to tell us a bit more about this picture? Well, um, thank you. And I, I, it is one of my most prized possessions because it was actually a gift from her. Wow. Um, and, you know, as Funky Mass can see, you know, it, it's signed by her, you know, obviously before she passed, but whenever I led the um, diversity and inclusion for Booz Allen Hamilton in Washington, um, for folks that are familiar with the American civil rights, the Greensboro lunch counter sit-in was a pivotal point in um, the civil rights movement. And um, Booz Allen was involved in getting and sponsoring the actual lunch counter becoming part of the Smithsonian's collection. And if folks mm -hmm. aren't familiar with the Smithsonian, it'd be the British Museum um, in there. But we had the good fortune to have the surviving members of the lunch counter come in. And um, Dr. Angelo has a, a series of charter schools in the Washington, D.C. area um, that predominantly, if not exclusively, have um, African-American Black students. So, you know, again, cost us nothing to do, really, but we simulcast the Greensboro lunch counter speakers to their school and invited some of their students to come in as a reward based on the school um, to come join us in the auditorium and meet the surviving members of this. Um, and 
you know, I was delighted to be able to do it. It's still a highlight of my career to think about the impact. Um, but, you know, afterwards I, I heard, you know, Dr. Angela wanted to send me something. I was expecting a sweatshirt from the school or a coffee mug and I would have been delighted. And one day this big box showed up in my office and I opened it up and it's this portrait. And wow. so, I mean, I was in tears. I'm a big old softie. Um, I'm in <laughs> tears to think that somehow this person that I'd always respected so, you know, that I was able to do something to help her or wow. her students and her ambitions whenever she had helped me. So it's this kind of self-perpetuating circle of, you mm. know, of gratitude and our ability to make a difference no matter who we are. Mm. And so, you know, I, I get embarrassed because normally I would be facing that pre-COVID and, uh, you know, I use it as inspiration and I feel like she's looking down on me as a reminder that the work I do is very important and that oh. I don't be, be thoughtful about what you do. But we mm. each have the opportunity to make a difference and, you know, the people we meet on the bus or, you know, on the street or the friends, kids that show intellectual curiosity. Mm. And, and do we take a moment of our time and do it? I, but I guarantee you the net effect and return you get from it is going to be much greater than anything it may cost you in the moment as far as time or an introduction or, or anything like that. Mm. That is Absolutely. just such a beautiful story. And to think of the visual representation again coming through very strongly as being so important to, to motivate and inspire. You know, for you, you've got that picture of her and you feel that she's with you in spirit almost, reminding you of your why. Um, and, and that visual representation for Max, I know when he went to Google, mm -hmm. having someone who was also of Nigerian heritage like him, very close in age, you know, he could really see this is what's possible for me. So... Mm -hmm. Some wonderful common threads there. Really fantastic. Oh, sorry. It, and even uh, another, I just remembered another example of, you know, mental, because I used to um, do a, basically a maths help session for the lower years uh, every at lunchtime. This was pre-COVID, so this feels like ages ago now. Um, so I remember this one uh, kid who uh, came in and it was really, you know, but the way it sets up is you sit down in the computer room and then, you know, the kids will come in um, and sit down at the computer and do their homework. And then you have to kind of see, you know, they'll struggle, but they won't, they won't tell you they're struggling because they don't want to seem like, you know, that they're, they're struggling. So you have to go and approach them like, oh, are you okay? And he goes, no, I'm really struggling with this. And it was uh, to do with triangles. And um, I basically taught him the Pythagoras theorem, uh, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And the way he looked at me, like I just told him, the meaning of life was, you know, insane. And I, you know, I talked to him and he got the homework right. I was like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I didn't really think anything of it because I taught, you know, I had like three other kids that day. But then his mom, who was a teacher at the school, came up to me and said he went home, named me and said, this boy helped me. It's like, you know, he was raving about me and saying, oh yeah, Max really helped me. He helped me understand this, this and that. And she thanked me so like profusely. She was like, thank you, thank you. Because he was really struggling. Me thinking like this was just a simple thing. Again, just like, that same theme of something small to you is something really big to somebody else. So it, it takes yeah. a village. I mean, it, it is an old saying, but it takes a village and it does, you know, mm. it's all those micro moments that, that, that come together to be meaningful. Mm. That's mm. just incredible. Again, the ripple effects, you know, mm. and so many, I'm sure if we had more time, we'd think of even more examples, mm. but let's just continue to hope that through this series, There'll be many, many, many more ripple effects 
uh, as people listen and think, what can I be doing? You know, I want everybody who's listening now to think about those two themes around privilege and allyship and think long and hard about what they can be doing to help someone else and, and just see, you know, and listen to the incredible impact that has uh, across the board. It's, it's a truly wonderful thing. So our time is almost up. Um, I don't know if there is anything else you feel you would love to say before we wrap things up, guys. Is there anything you'd like to say, Chuck, before we say goodbye? Well, you know, Funky, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, it is it, a year into COVID, it's really hard to have optimism, you know? Oh. Um, but I get asked a lot, has COVID helped or hurt inclusion? And the answer is both. Um, we've seen some amazing acts of generosity and communities coming together and, and, and the ability of, of people to improve a difficult situation. Um, and we've seen the exact opposite. And it's really easy to be negative about what's going on, but I'm an eternal optimist. You know, and I, I hope um, that even in these dark days when we've, we've all lost someone or, you know, been ill, that we can, we can be generous in what we do and, and be an ally or help someone in their career ambition or help their neighbor by bringing them some groceries. Or um, I was uh, talking to some friends, they, they, the tulip season has been impacted in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and they bought a box of a hundred um, tulips and left bundles of tulips on each other's, on their neighbor's doorstep. Mm. And so it's not going to go through and help someone become, you know, a brilliant software engineer and revolutionize and have their own company one day. No pressure. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, what's the, what, are, what are the little things we can do that just kind of, you know, make the world a better place? Mm. I really like that a lot. Thank mm. you. And, and Max, what, what's, what would you like to say? Uh, I just want to say thank you to you both for, you know, uh, just being, uh, obviously my mom being a major factor in helping me through my life. But also Chuck, I mean, you just saying that it was just a quick message. That message really changed my life. It really did. I cannot see how my life would be going. Uh, if I hadn't, you know, had that push to pursue this career and pursue tech like I was. Um, so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, honestly. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and on that wonderful note, we'll say goodbye. And I look forward to many, many more interesting conversations going forward. Thank you both, Chuck and Max. Thank goodbye, you. Goodbye, everyone.